Take your Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 2. Our text is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. Revelation 2, 12 through 17. Open your Bible or scroll there on your phone and uh, we'll lay eyes on that. So one of my favorite places in Michigan is a little place you can hike to easily. Uh, it's called Empire Bluff. And if you park in the little parking spot and you hike about a, a half a mile of undulating trail out to the bluff, you're 150 feet above sea level. And it's amazing the, the beautiful part of Michigan you can see from 150 feet above sea level. You can see the Manitou Passage. You can see south and north Manitou Island. You can see up along uh, the Sleeping Bear uh, sea, uh, uh, Lake uh, front there, the, sea, the coast from 150 feet above sea level. Now we traveled out to Oregon where our daughter lives and we climbed a, a thing called the Astoria Column and from the top of the Astoria Column you're 650 feet above sea level. You can see over into Washington State. You have a perspective on the mouth of the Columbia River. You can see down the Pacific Coast and all over town. It's amazing what you can see from 650 feet above sea level. The perspective that we're going to have today, though, is um, from the city of Pergamum, or Pergamus, and there is an acropolis there, still today, and there was at the time, where the temples were built on the top of the hill over side of the city, and it was 1,000 feet above sea level. And there, uh, though a Pergamus was not a commercial center, it was a religious center. And there were temples to various gods of the people. And it was a key religious center. And there were temples there to at least five different gods. It was an unusually challenging environment for a church of Jesus Christ to be in. There were temples there to the principal deities of all of the Greco-Roman world. And it is interesting to think about this place that we're going to read about here in a minute. Because humankind is innately and intuitively religious. We're, by very nature, we, we long to have a God or gods. Why do people read horoscopes? Why do people dabble with false religion? Why is it that in every major bookstore in America, there's a major section, usually almost as large as the evangelical section or larger, that's filled with demonic, satanic, occult material? That's big stuff. And why is that? It's because all of us are created to worship and we're fallen and spiritually blind and estranged from God. And the world is full of people who are religious enemies of God. You know, the Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. And they're represented, all these gods, or many of them, the major ones were represented high on this Acropolis or this hill over Pergamos, the ancient city of Pergamos. High on this hill over Pergamos, was a temple to Athena. Athena was the goddess of wisdom. And Pergamos was, had the second greatest library in the ancient world with over 200,000 volumes. Don't think folio, think scrolls. They developed parchment because papyrus was denied them when they tried to recruit the librarian from Alexandria, Egypt, to be like Michigan, trying to recruit Michigan State's coach or otherwise. I mean, they need help. Maybe that's not the way to do it. Sorry about that. <laughs> sort of slipped right there. And the, but back in the ancient world, they tried to recruit the librarian from Alexandria, Egypt, 
and there was drama over that. And Egypt then cut off their source of paper, so they developed their own source of parchment, and it's really kind of named after the city. So the point being that Pergamus, Pergamum was a city that was a city of uh, high you know, culture and learning, and there was a temple to the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And so the word uh, parchment may have been a derivative of the uh, name of the city, Pergamum. So they were a city proud of their wisdom, a city proud of their knowledge. Among other things, they worshiped an academic superiority. So kind of similar to a really proud college town with a bit of a religious twist. There was a temple in uh, Pergamum to Asclepius, the god of healing. God of healing, you remember the pictures of the, of the uh, serpents on the pole is representative of medicine today. During the reign of Diocletian, some Christian stonecutters were executed because they refused to carve an image to Asclepius. There was a temple to Dionysus, or otherwise known Bacchus, the god of pleasure, a wine. Bacchus among the Greeks, drunkenness, pleasure, wine, revelry, sexual immorality. Does any of this sound familiar to anybody here? Satan doesn't really do new things. He just puts different labels on old things. And so you have a, you have a culture that's spiraling away from God into kind of a anti-God culture, pagan culture, polytheistic culture. There are people who are going to worship the God of drunkenness, immorality. And in a society like that, little children aren't safe. In a society like that, little babies aren't safe. In that society, there was sometimes they were given over to ritual human sacrifice, exposure of infants and so forth. They didn't value human life. There was a temple to the god of Athena, goddess Athena, a temple to the god Asclepius, a temple to the god Dionysus. On the Acropolis over Pergamum, a temple to the god goddess Demeter, the harvest or prosperity or plenty. And then, of course, a temple or a, uh, an altar to Zeus, the the king of the gods in the, in the Grecian world, the god of power, god of dominance, highest in the hierarchy of gods, god of gods, small g, king of Mount Olympus. Um, and so then there was also a, a, a temple or a series of temples that were built to um, uh, Caesar worship, uh, the god of political experience. There was a temple of Trajan, a temple of the of, of imperial cult. Uh, this would have been uh, Pergamus would have been the first of the cities that were patterning itself in, intentionally after the, these, uh, the, this Roman pattern in, in, in Caesar worship. And they built the temple. Uh, so it would be common for a city to build a temple to a, to a, um, uh, a, to a Caesar or, or to a, um, uh, a Greek uh, leader. So they, they built the first one, and then they built two more eventually, and it's not really a lot different today. There's a pantheon of gods all around us. And they still kind of draw our loyalty or our affection or toy with our minds or our, or our money or our, or our time. And there are gods all around us, all around Bethel Church that would draw our loyalty away from God or weaken or, or our, our understanding. It, it, we have a little dog, his name is Hazard. He, we put him out on a little... We put him out on a little line in the morning sometimes to go out and visit outside, and uh, which works fine. We've done this for 10 long years. So we put a little hazard out. Just kidding, Hope. We put a little hazard out in the morning there, which is just fine. 
It's perfectly harmless. Unless in the winter you're leaving for work early in the morning and it's icy and his little line is like stretched across the front porch in the darkness, and then one could be tripped up easily and could fall headlong into the ice and snow and would, would have to wrestle against the urge to say less than flattering things about his little pet. It's like, never happened to me, but I've come really close a few times. I've often thought, one of these days, I will show up in church, you know, with a broken nose and two black eyes and a tooth knocked out, and you'll go, you were tripped up, weren't you? And all around us are, and it's, it isn't funny, you know, all, all around us are traps, tripwires, false deities, things that aren't quite true. And most of us are going to resist those, and most of us are going to reject those. But when we read this text today, I want you to notice there is a subtlety Even among people who say, I recognize that false God and I resist it, there's still a possibility of compromise. There's still a possibility of of, uh, delusion, you know. And so uh, let's let's, uh, give you you just one little example in our culture. I received an email from a viewer last week who asked about our church's view on homosexual marriage and on homosexual practice. And so I wrote back, you know, just a, a kind letter, and I said, we welcome all people no matter what their sin struggle but we do believe that homosexual practice is sinful so we should grab coffee sometime or breakfast and or feel free to give me a call and we can meet in the church and we can talk about this this is what i wrote to the person he wrote back i'm very very disappointed that bethel church would take such a harsh stance against fellow human beings in the name of jesus and then he recommended some christian books and some christian teaching which would enlighten me about how most of the church has really been wrong all these hundreds of years about homosexual practice being sinful. Now, you know, what do you think about that? What do you think I think about that? You can send me a tape, or you can send me a recording, or you can send me a book, or I can send you a book, but maybe what we ought to do is we should say, Jesus, what do you think about that? And when we get to Revelation chapter 2, and verses 12 through 17, Jesus speaks in clear and uncertain terms about matters of sexual immorality and idolatry and other things. And so let's read that text and let's just say, what does the Son of Man say? And it says in in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12 to the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum writes, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now that'll get your attention. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, and you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. You, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of of Balaam. What I have against you, a few things against you, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some, verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. 
You have some, verse 15, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaeans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, here, you, you know the pattern by now. There are seven churches, and every one of the letters to the, each of the seven churches is divided in, you could say, in seven little sections. And the sections would include a greeting and then a description of this, a piece of the description of the vision of the Son of Man, which is given in Revelation chapter 1, and part of it carried forward to each of the churches uniquely and poetically or with some literary sophistication. There's this description of Jesus, a piece of the description of Jesus that kind of is custom made for that particular church. And then there is a, if you will, a commendation for most of the churches. Here's what you did right and what you're doing which is right. And then for most of the churches, there's a condemnation. This is what you're doing wrong, and I'm holding you accountable for this. And then after that, you would have a correction. This is what I expect you to do about the thing that I'm correcting you about. And then there is a warning, number six, a warning. And if you do, don't, here's what's going to happen to you. And then the last thing, at every one of the seven letters to the seven churches, it ends in the same way with a, with a promise of reward, which includes in those who are victorious, the Nike word in Greek, the Nike, the victory word. Those of you who end victorious, those who are, that's the, the theme here is that we're in a spiritual struggle and a spiritual warfare, and there will be those who are casualties of that warfare, and there are those who are, are going to end victorious, who are going to overcome in the end. And here's what I'm going to give to those who overcome. And every one of these seven letters has these seven sections in it. So that's how we're going to treat it as we teach it. So let's just go through these and look at those seven things. Number one, there's a greeting. The greeting is to the messenger, the angel, or the pastor, or the representative of the church in Pergamum. The description of Jesus here is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Christ is described as with a sword, which is a symbol of judgment. It pictures Jesus in the role of judge and executioner. This is clear again in chapter 19 and verse 15, at the return of Christ in power and great glory. The implication, if we tolerate them, God will judge them. There's a two-edged sword. So this is the description of Christ there in verse 12. In verse 13, there's the commendation. What did they do right? He says, I know. In every one of the seven letters, he says, I know. I see. Jesus is watching. He's paying attention. He's ever present. He's ever evaluating, ever judging. He's the ultimate judge of everything. Keep this in mind. He says, church, always keep in mind, Jesus is walking among the candlesticks. He knows what you're doing that's right. He knows what you're doing that's wrong. He's the one you ought to care about the most is the implication here. It's the clear implication. So he says, I know your works. He says in verse 13, I know you dwell in the the place of Satan's throne. There's a lot of discussion about this. There's a lot of study about this among scholars of the Bible. And there are a lot of suggestions about specifically what that might mean. But it probably is a reference to the place they call the throne of Zeus which was a prominent feature of the landscape for everybody in Pergamum every day. As if Zeus was the ultimate deity, 
Jesus says, I know you live where you can see the throne of the devil every day, Satan's throne every day, and yet you held fast to my name, and you held fast to your faith. This is good. So this is a church that did not deny the name of Jesus, even though there were names of other gods everywhere. They believed in Jesus alone, and they retained their trust in him, their faith in him, so they were commended for this. This is a very good thing. And Pergamus, the Roman governor, the Roman pro protorate of the region, had his head offices in Pergamum. And it was known that he had what they called the right to the sword. In other words, he had the authority to render judgment and execute people. And in this particular passage, it says there was a man in the church named Antipas who probably died by the sword of the Roman governor. And it would have been preceded in his execution by a person going before him in a procession with a huge sword as a symbol of judgment and as, and as a specter of the execution that was going to follow. And Jesus is saying here, I am ultimately the one who has the right to the sword. So you can be intimidated by the threats of the culture around you, or you can live in the fear of God. In the face of danger, they had not denied their faith in Jesus. So they were to be commended. But, they, but he said, but there's more in verses 14 and 15. It kind of takes a dark turn, doesn't it? There are two things I have. But I have a few things against you. You have some there. And again, you notice I stopped in the reading and repeated a couple things three times because I thought, as I studied this for hours this week, this is a key thing. The thing he's going after is, it's good that you didn't deny my name, and it's good that you didn't deny my faith, but there are people among you who hold to these, who are teaching these evil things and practicing these evil things. And it's as if the church has a culpability, a guilt before Jesus that they're allowing among them people who practice and teach these things. This is very important right now, because in the modern church, there's, you know, there's a kind of question out like, do, do we, are we a place that just tolerates sinners, tolerates people devoted to their sin? And welcomes them and makes them feel comfortable or is there a different attitude that we should have and 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 here we yield to the king of the church jesus and we say what do you say about that and he says i have something against you that there are people that are given over to this teaching of balaam we'll describe that in a minute or this teaching of the nicolaitans we'll describe that in a minute and, and and they're among you and you haven't done anything about it. i'm going to come and i'm going to judge them with the sword of my mouth but he, that's getting ahead of ourselves he says i i see this and and, the, and these are things I have against you. They're eating things offered to idols. They're participating in that idolatry to some degree. And they're participating in immorality. And the idolatry and the immorality in that culture was often linked together. Not unlike the way it is in our culture. Once a person has given into false gods, they frequently give into sexual immorality of some variety. And so it was there. And it was a part of the practice of those things. And it was difficult to do business. It was difficult to get an education. It was difficult to live in that culture because it was so thoroughly pagan that everywhere you turned, everything you did had some kind of pagan significance. So it was a, easy to compromise in that culture. And our culture that we live in has kind of the echo of some kind of you know, Christian heritage, and yet it's becoming more and more secular, anti-God, pagan, the culture that we're living in. It's affecting the church. And there are those in the church that, that we're being tolerant with who are practicing idolatry and immorality and teaching that. And this is what the heir of Balaam was. You know, the Balaam, the Old Testament prophet that was paid 
uh, by the king of Moab to curse the children of Israel. And he kind of, you could tell, he kind of was a double-minded guy, and he kind of wanted that money, and he kind of wanted to help a little bit, but then he couldn't bring himself to curse them. And so he said, I'll tell you what you want to do. I can't curse them, but, I, but, but they will be vulnerable if you introduce you know, a godless sexual practice, they'll be vulnerable to that. And so, you know, you can win that way. And so this was the, the error of Balaam re- that he was referring to, really, is this syncretic nature of religion and, and that's tolerant of sexual immorality. Does that sound to anybody here at all relevant to our day? It's interesting, isn't it? And says this, an era of Balaam and and the the, the era of the Nicolaitans was probably similar to that. But the point is that they were, they had those people of Balaam and the Nicolaitans among them. And they were allowing them, they're towering that, and they were towering them to teach. And it says that, I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then, again, it specifically talks about eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. Eating food sacrificed to idols was not sinful, perhaps until the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where they're bringing together Jews and Gentile converts, and they're saying, in order not to be kind of in the face of people with a tender conscience, set aside your freedom to eat meat offered to idols. But in this passage, it's probably referring to something even more than just simply having meat that was at one time offered to idols, but participation in some form of compromise with the various, you know, cults and, and small g-gods. This is not a small thing. First Peter, it says, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, like you don't belong forever in the world that, that you're in right now before it gets changed over to the new heaven and new earth, right? I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust because these war against your soul. So let's be clear about what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I'm going to judge you because you participated in idolatry or immorality. He's saying, I'm going to judge you because there are people that you tolerate in the church who participate in idolatry and immorality and teach that it's okay. Does that sound amazingly contemporary to you? He says, you you won't practice church discipline. Now, that would, that would kind of like surface a question. I think this is the main point of this passage. I really think the main point of this whole thing is, I have these things, I'm for you because, I, it's, look, I'm, I'm watching. You live in, near the throne of Satan, but you haven't denied my name and you haven't denied the faith, but you are compromising in this area right here. And if you don't stop those people, I'm going to come and judge them with a sword of my mouth. So you want to, I, I expect you to, to act on that. So that would, that would force us that are thoughtful and under the authority of Jesus to say, Jesus, what is church discipline then? What does that look like? What would it look like for us to obey you in this? Now, if you're like I am, your mind might go, you know, when you think church discipline, do you kind of think like the ordaining of the Amish sect is going immediately to like the Hester Prine thing where you found, say, a woman that was involved in immorality and you put the scarlet A on her chest and maybe you burn her at the stake or banish her from the from the thing, you know, the ultimate, like, you're kicked out of the church thing? Is that what comes to your mind? Because it tends to. In other words, here's what I'm trying to say. I hope I can make this very clear. When we think about church discipline, we use that term church discipline, what we, I think, my opinion is, what we normally think is, like, the, you know, the way down the road when somebody has refused to repent of their sin and they have to be put out of the church, we say, oh, that's church discipline. I want to suggest to you that's not 
to be seen. That's not how we should see church discipline. I'm not saying it's not appropriate sometimes to say, if you refuse to follow Jesus and you openly are devoted to your sin and you will not repent, that you shouldn't be put out of the number. That, that, the Bible does teach that. What I'm saying is, discipline is like discipleship, and it starts way further than that, way earlier than that. In other words, how would you obey this passage? You might be a woman, and you might obey this passage by taking a Sunday school class of little girls and saying, with all of my heart and with all of my might and with all of my skill and ability, I'm going to teach these little girls to follow Jesus and to live lives of true worship and moral purity, I'm going to start when they're little, so that as they grow up, this is the kind of persons that they are. That's discipleship. It's the, it's the brothers who meet every morning, one, you know, one morning a week for years, and they, they share honestly with one another about their own personal sin struggles to keep themselves honest before God and faithful to their wives and loyal to their families. That's what church discipline looks like. Church discipline is saying, I'm not going to skip every other Sunday and feel like, you know, that's not going to hurt my spiritual life. I'm going to devote myself to being among the assembly of believers, even if there's other stuff to do, because I need the weekly discipline of fellowship with God's people and being under the word. It, it could look a hundred different ways, but the church should not provide an environment where unbelievers and disobedient professing Christians feel comfortable we should have an environment where they come in and feel compassion and they come in and feel conviction and you and I feel compassion and you and I feel conviction. Let me give you an example. My son-in-law, Dale, married to Hannah, is over at our house a number of months ago and he's laying the floor in our upstairs bedroom, laying the hardwood floor, and I'm there for moral support. So I'm talking to him and I say to him, Dale, I said, so how is it at your church they go to church over on the other side of the state, and I go, what's it like? Is your church, you know, do you feel like it's a good church? Is it, is it, a, is it sound? Are you, do you feel like it's, he goes, I, I don't know, he's just nailing the floor. He says, I, all I know is that every week when Hannah and I go to that church, God convicts us about something. And when he said that, I'm like, stay in that church. Every week, now, I'm not saying you all are guilty every week of everything I ever said. That would be a little weird. But, but I thought it was, it, it told me something about them. It told me something about the church. It told me that the church is teaching, has got their nose in the word of God and is helping to disciple or to discipline their spiritual life so they won't drift from the, from the Lord or from faithfulness to the Lord. And it tells me that their heart is tender. And I really think that's what Jesus is saying to the church here. Thank you that you haven't denied my name. Thank you that haven't, you haven't denied your faith. Be very careful that you don't create a place that's tolerant of this pressure around you. It's a tripwire. It's dangerous. Don't create a place that's tolerant of idolatry and sexual immorality. Does anybody at Bethel Church feel the pressure in the culture to be tolerant of idolatry and sexual immorality in our day? This is the day that we live in. This is the environment that your children are going to be raised in. Your grandchildren are going to drink the groundwater of this culture. And, 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 and before we get too desperately discouraged about that, we need to remember that the first century church was birthed in a very pagan place, in a very pagan culture, and it flourished in a pagan culture. And so what we want to do is, is to practice church discipline in the forms of of loving people, training people, teaching the Word of God, 
helping people walk through the issues in their life or even the temptations or attractions which may be various right in their lives and this is the way it should look and i'm reading here from what paul said to young timothy he said the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome in other words we're not just picking a fight with the world we're not picking the fight with the same sex attracted girl or the same sex attracted guy we're not picking a fight with the person that's living with somebody they, they aren't married to. We're not, we're not being ugly with them. We love them, and we're gentle with them. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, so God may perhaps grant them repentance. And that will lead to them acknowledging the truth, and they will come to their senses and they will escape the snare of the devil because they've been captured by him to do his will. You should take your Bible in a highlighter and you should open that passage this afternoon and you should highlight that passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. This should characterize our church. Gentle, patient people who pray for one another, who teach one another, they're not tolerant in the sense that like it's okay whatever you do no that stuff's going to kill you jesus is going to come against you with the sword of his mouth but we're not eager to condemn the bible says it like this commending ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of god so if you want to help somebody appeal to their conscience ask them questions about right and wrong about the law of god which is written on their hearts and as you appeal to their conscience about what's right and wrong, good and evil, black and white, God the Holy Spirit will work with some of them and draw them to himself and illuminate them. And th in this, you're participating in the highest form of church discipline. But what Jesus is saying to the church here is, even though you've done these things that are good, you're neglecting that, and I want you to make that right. And, and notice then here, and it's the correction that they're supposed to take. I want you to repent or I'll come against you quickly with the sword of my mouth god will suddenly judge those one day who are characterized by idolatry sexual immorality if we tolerate idolatry sexual immorality in other words idolatry would be you know all of us wrestle with that every day giving to somebody else what belongs only to god or trying to get from somebody or something else what only god can give us is idolatry is there a man is there a woman is there a boy or a girl in the house it hasn't wrestled with some form of idolatry this week some of you you're doing it right now you're like stop so i can go to the buffet that's idolatry i just kidding with you there um but we, we wrestle with idolatry sexual immorality is, is struggling with sexual immorality is pretty common among christians and even christian leaders so let's not just point the uh, the finger across the aisle but let's discipline ourselves and, and disciple ourselves to follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus says, repent or I'll come against you quickly with the sword of my mouth. That was the word of the Lord to the church in Pergamum. In, in, in what's the word of the Lord to the church in, at Bethel or, or Jackson? How can we keep our church from being corrupted? He says, listen, verse 17, let the, you know, church here, here listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches so all the churches are supposed to listen to all the other churches because there's a message for one of the churches for all of us right 
He says, listen, so that's one of the things, we should repent, which means whenever you see anything wrong, and this should be a regular thing you repent. We used to run this huge hotel, the 16-story hotel with 500 rooms, and it had a serious heating and cooling system. It had a really serious discharge of yucky stuff system. And um, I was down in the, in the basement one day and working with the people. They were trying to describe to me what was happening down there with our sewage system. And, and they, they, we had a malfunction that was very dangerous. And they said we had a failure. The, the inspector says we have a failure of our backflow preventers. I'm like, what's that? You catching this? So where the bad sewage goes out, it goes out in really, really big pipes. And it has a valve on it that keeps it from backing up into the system and pulling bad stuff from everywhere else around the city of Flint into the building. As you can imagine, backflow preventers are something that you don't notice until they don't work. You want your backflow preventers working well. That's why we have inspections. What Jesus is saying to the church is make sure you have a very well-maintained backflow preventer. That the foul stuff that's out there doesn't come back into your church. Because the church is the pure, holy, spotless bride of Jesus Christ. That's devoted to holiness, to, to, to moral purity, to, 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 to true worship, to, to righteousness. And every single one of us, every dad in the room, and every woman, every child should say, how's my backflow preventer working? Where do I need to maybe turn that movie off and choose something else? Or take this practice and, you know, stop, repent, change. Metanoia is the word, churn in mind. It's a big word, Bible word, meta, mean, that's translated repent. And it means change your mind, your will, and emotions, and everything about you, and go completely the other direction. Christian people look to the Lord of the church who has a sword in his mouth of judgment, and we regularly say, yes, sir, Jesus, I'll do what you say, and not what my culture is pressuring me to do. And this is what he's saying here. And, and so he says, and be, um, be disciples, make disciples, um, and then per, uh, persevere when you're surrounded by pressure. There's a warning, and, and it's a warning, in, in, uh, a serious warning. He says, um, he who has an ear, let him hear. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you quickly or soon, and I'll war against them with the sword of my mouth. So it's like, here's a person over here that's especially vulnerable to immorality or idolatry. And here's the faithful Christian who's walking with the Lord. We want quickly to move there and help them along because Jesus is about to war with them with the sword of his mouth. And he says, I'm holding you responsible for that. So our job as a church is not just to kind of let people do what they want to do. And it's not to just go around condemning people either. But graciously, wisely, patiently, gently saying, yes, you're absolutely welcome but you're not welcome to not change because we're all here to change into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And there's a balance there. And, you know, we've all seen it badly both ways. And then there's a reward for overcomers. He says, if you listen, I'll give you the hidden manna and the white stone and the new name, which no one knows. Some of you are thinking, what is that name? And I'm going to say, <laughs> no one knows. And that's kind of nice because it's hard to interpret some of these things. But, but, but it is interesting. We all have a similar cluster of human needs and desires around us. Our God is who we look to to meet those needs, right? You, you and I have the same kinds of needs that the people in the first century church did, the first century Pergamum did. Desire for wisdom, 
or a desire for academic achievement or a desire for physical health or a desire for prosperity and plenty or a desire for pleasure and comfort or a desire for superiority or might or power or a desire for political clout or political influence. Does this sound familiar at all? Well, Athena was the goddess of academic achievement. Jesus is saying, I am the one that will give you ultimate wisdom. And Asclepius was the god of physical prowess and health. And Jesus says, if you want genuine vitality and eternal life, I'm the only one that you can turn to for that. And Dionysus was the god of pleasure. And Jesus says, I'm the only one that you can have legitimate, true pleasure that you don't feel guilty about. And Demeter is the god of prosperity and plenty. And Jesus says, genuine prosperity comes from me. And Zeus is the god of superiority and might and power. And Jesus says, if you want genuine power, you have to come to me. And Trajan is the god of political clout. Are you listening to me? And in the political clout, and Jesus says, I am the one who can, only one who can influence the world rightly. All of these, and how does he say that? He says it in a unique and beautiful poetic way with symbols in the last verse here where he says he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit is saying to the churches the one who overcomes the one who conquers the victorious one i will give him some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on the stone no one knows except he who receives it now at, at, immediately when you read that you, you're like i mean you think i don't know what those symbols mean no we don't but poet not immediately but poetically, in a literary sense, you can just read those and you can immediately see he's going to reward us with something valuable. He's going to reward us with something that's, that's an, a, that's a, a, that has an intimacy. You and I are the only ones who know this, right? There's going to be a valuable reward, an intimacy. We know these things are true. The hidden manna is this manna in the Bible, a symbol of Christ and, and, and of, uh, a symbol of ultimate uh, satisfaction. And the messianic age is, is, is message, and the messianic age is hidden. It's not understood to the unbeliever or to the person who, in other words, if you follow false gods, you won't understand God's program in the world, which involves the Messiah coming and satisfying like bread all of our deepest desires. That will be hidden to you. But those who overcome, it will be revealed to them. Does that make sense? Jesus is going to show you in a spiritual enlightenment that's very powerful that he alone is the satisfaction of every human need that's what he's saying and then there's the white stone don't think white like whitewash think white like diamond valuable white hopi i was thinking about this today and i know you don't want me to do this so i won't but i was thinking about asking you to join me on the platform and I was thinking, and I'm not going to do this, Hope, because I want to be buddies, okay? And I was thinking about having you show us one of your most valuable possessions, which would be your white stone. Am I right? Hopi has a white stone on her left hand, and she just looks at it for hours every day. It was given to her by a loved one, and it's symbolic of an intimacy and, and, a, and of a promise of lifelong love. And what's interesting is after she got it, a number of weeks later, she discovered something about it. It had a secret message written inside just between Tim and Hope. Jesus is saying, you can go and you can squander your affections on the world and all the foul, filthy, confusing, dissatisfying stuff in the world, or you can come to me and I will always satisfy you. And you come to me and I'll give you a token, a valuable token of my eternal affection for you. 
And this draws all kinds of symbols from out of the Bible of communication from God through the Urim and Thummim and so forth. Like God speaking secrets into the souls of people. Like, God, I don't know what to do. I'll tell you my secrets. Stay close to me. That's what Jesus is saying. I can't, here, here's what he's saying. You can be intimidated by the sword of the culture, or you can walk in the fear of God because I have a sword you know, coming out of my mouth. They say, we have a right to the sword. Jesus says, I have the sword, the two-edged sword, the sharp sword. They say, the culture says, we have a God to meet any of your needs. We have a late night infomercial for everybody here, right? Jesus says, I am the one who meets all the needs, and I will give you a hidden manna. They, the culture and the false gods say, if you serve us, we'll satisfy you. We know what you need. Jesus says, I alone know what you need. I have, remember, and he says, I have that name no one else knows, like your hidden nickname. My dad, when I was a little boy, he would always call me buddy. Hey, buddy. Whenever I hear somebody say buddy, my heart is flooded with warmth. That's my name to my dad. Now, if you're an adult man and you walk up to me and you go, yo, buddy, I won't feel the same way about it. But when my dad says, come here, buddy, all of that warm affection for my childhood rushes in. I have a daughter whose name is Hannah Ruth. For all of her life, I have a special name for her that only I use, it's called, and I call her Rudy. That's a, a corruption of her middle name, Ruth. I, hey, Rudy. So I don't think of it when I call her Rudy, and when I took her up to camp, to serve at camp, and her friends were there, I'm like, hey, Rudy. And all the kids said, Rudy? Who's Rudy? What does that mean? She's like, around my friend's dad, don't call me Rudy. That'll just be between us. There'll come a time in her life when she hears Rudy, and she'll know it was only me that could be calling her name. Jesus says, I am willing to live with you in an intimacy that only you and I will understand. I will satisfy you in a way no one else can satisfy you. And that's going to be eternal. You want to trust me. You want to retain your faith. You don't want to get pulled into idolatry. You don't want to get pulled into immorality. You don't want to get pulled into endorsing other people's idolatry or immorality. You work with me to help people be free from those things the, the world around us is making all kinds of promises like bow to the gods. They can offer you pleasure that you can't get anywhere else. Jesus says, I'll give you the white stone of admittance to a victor. But the white stone given in that culture, if you study it real carefully, it's interesting. It, it's used for a lot of different things. It can be used in the, in, in the court to, to show that you are acquitted of your crime. You're given the white stone and not the black stone. But in this case, it's the context of victory you were given then in that culture a white stone of admittance, almost like the ticket to the victor's banquet. And so if you can imagine, Jesus is going to give you the enduring, valuable, beautiful ticket to the victor's banquet someday. That's what he's saying. So they say, worship here or you're going to lose everything. Jesus says, worship me and you'll be admitted to the eternal winner's banquet. There's the sword of the world and there's the sword of the Lord. There's the throne or the rule of Satan. There's the throne and the rule of Christ. There's the banquet of the world, eating the meat offered to idols. There's the banquet of the Lord. There's the name of the gods and all of their various names. There's the one name of Jesus. There's a place where we can dwell now and find a place of belonging temporarily. Or there's a place where we can live forever in the presence of God and dwell forever in the presence of God. There's intimacy that we can have through sinful sexual experimentation, 
or this intimacy that we can have through sexual faithfulness as the Lord has told us to do it. There's a communion or identification with faith in the world, trusting, but there's a communion and identification with faithfulness to Jesus. The word Pergamum, interestingly enough, means married. And the question is, are you married to the world or are you married to the Lord? I don't know what to call this message. I experimented with different titles now that I've come towards the end. I'm within a couple hours of the end, you know. Um, but, but I don't know what to call it, but I, but I was thinking that it's like the church can't just play defense. The church has to play offense too. He said, I commend you. You play defense well. But there are people who need you to reach out and rescue them from immorality and rescue them from idolatry. And another way of saying it, we could entitle the message, the faith that you guard and you give away. Bethel shouldn't be a church that just guards its faith. Bethel should be a church that guards the faith and gives it away at the same time. And so this church is not only standing for the name of Jesus, but we're actively helping other people embrace Jesus. So yesterday, I went to a funeral and it was the funeral of my Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill was in my prayers every night of my life. Like you would say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You would say, God, please save my Uncle Bill. Every night of my life, God, please save Uncle Bill. Aunt Marlene was a Christian. She was a sweet Christian from West Virginia. Her tea was sweet, Lois. Her burgers were thick. She was a sweet lady. When I was in college, she died of breast cancer. And Uncle Bill was left alone, an unbelieving man, trying to find his way alone. And one day, this old preacher, Carter, he, my Uncle Bill stumbled into a church. My Uncle Bill was, was an alcoholic. My Uncle Bill was a violence. And he was a sweet guy other than that. And he was opinionated. And he was bigoted. Some other charming things but we loved uncle bill uncle bill was part of the voice of my childhood as a little boy he stumbled into a church and got saved after marlene died and he got really saved and his life just totally turned around he started going on missions trips with the southern baptists we were driving through tennessee one day and i looked over i'm like that's my uncle bill we pulled him over and he gave us a coke out of his trailer he's on a missions trip he i and and i talked to a neighbor i was writing a book about the family farm and I talked to a neighbor that had been a lifelong enemy of my Uncle Bill. And the neighbor said, your Uncle Bill came over and punched me one day. You know that, right? I'm like, yeah, I heard that. Actually, the story I heard was kind of different. But, you know, yeah, the, the, but I did hear that part that my Uncle Bill had gone over and punched him. What I didn't know was that my Uncle Bill had gone over in drunken rage and punched him. And it wasn't good. And then the neighbor sued him. And my Uncle Bill lost that. And I shouldn't say too much more about my Uncle Bill. He's with the Lord right now, but I was talking with that neighbor, and he said, you know, your Uncle Bill came up to me at a funeral one day, and he said to me, well, Dave, he said, I owe you an apology. I, I suppose, he said, I suppose I owe you an apology for what I did. And then this guy, Dave, says to me, he hasn't apologized yet. And I said, well, if you know my Uncle Bill, I wonder if you would just receive that as an apology from our family because, you know, he was still a little rough around the edges. This is probably the closest he's going to get. But that was an apology. God changed my Uncle Bill's life. And my Uncle Bill turned away, and he, was, he, he won a victory over alcoholism. And he, uh, and he ended his life honorably and faithfully, and he went to be with the Lord. 
I've often thought about, you know, how, you, how do you measure a church? Growing up, you know, you had a tendency to say how many people came or how much money was given or how big is the building, things like that. How many buses does your church run? As I've gotten older and I've paid a lot of attention to the church, I think the best way to measure the church is tell me your stories of people's lives who got changed because of that church. That's how you measure a church. Stories of people who used to be in sexual immorality and now they're in a Christian marriage. Stories of people that wrestled with dark urges to take them far away from God. But they've lived all their lives in faithful obedience to Jesus Christ, even though they always wrestled with dark urges that would pull them away from faithfulness to God because they believed that Jesus was a greater reward than anything else. That's the story. That's how you measure a church. I think you measure a church with stories of changed lives. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know, Pergamum, I'm, I, I have this for you. You've kept the faith. You've been faithful to my name. I have this against you. There are people among you who are involved in idolatry and immorality, and you're not doing anything about it. Do something about it. I want to hear stories about changed lives. So before we go home tonight, today, we have a couple of things to do. I think what I'd like to do is 